Well, um, if you got your Bible, uh, find the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Tonight we're moving our head and moving ahead in our our uh, parable series to the next parable. We're not, as you can tell, we've been in Matthew, we've been in Luke, we've been back in Matthew. We're not taking these, we're not taking these parables in any kind of order that they are presented to us in the Gospels because, frankly, for a lot of them, um, they they appear in all different kind of places, like. Matthew will have the parables in a certain order, and it's not the same order that Luke has them. And so there's not one prescribed gospel-given order that we should study through these. So what, based on that, uh, I, I've tried, as we study through these this year, this year I've tried to group these, um, these parables together thematically uh, as, as best as I can. And for that reason, we've been studying early on since the first week, including to now, we've been studying parables that Jesus told concerning how a person enters into his kingdom, how a, how a person comes into his kingdom and, and begins life with him. And so we, we've seen that in a number of parables. We saw it in the, in the parable of the sower the first week, which had to do with, uh, you know, the, what it, which one is the true seed which actually receives the word and, and bears fruit? That's the beginning and, 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 and who's, who's truly in the kingdom. Or the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We studied that the next week. Which The whole point of that was which, which, which one of these men displays true repentance and, and, and faith, the, the kind of repentance and faith that Christ is looking for in somebody who's, which one of these is going to go home to his house justified? That's beginning language. Uh, we talked about the parable of the prodigal son or the lost sons last week. And again, it's, and that parable is focusing on um, the, the humility that is characteristic of true repentance. Both sons were lost. The younger son, the prodigal, he was lost. But so was the older one, the legalistic brother. Uh, one was lost in his rebellion. The other one was lost in his self-righteousness. And, uh, and, and, and only one, the prodigal, went down to his house justified because he's the one who could see his need and he came back to his father. Well, the parable we're going to think about tonight is still in the neighborhood of those parables focusing on who comes into the kingdom. Who, yeah, how does one enter into that life in the kingdom with, with, in, with Christ? And I said at the outset of this series that the parables as a whole, that they are meant to give us a window into Life with Jesus, a window into life in his kingdom. We'll see that even more clearly as we move through this year of parables, but we see it clearly in the parable tonight because, I mean, it is, this, is, this parable, the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, it literally begins with Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he tells this parable uh, that, that is meant to literally say, hey, this is what my kingdom's like. And this is what life with me in my kingdom is like. So uh, if you're there, Matthew 22, let's read it, and then I'll show you what I want us to glean from it before we dive deep into it. So Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants 
to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves, my, they have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. All right, let's pray. Lord, um, this parable uh, is, is, comes to us written uh, by the, the Holy Spirit-inspired pen of, of Matthew. It's your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, um, and we come humbly to it again, and we ask that you would please give us eyes to see the truth that you have for us in this parable from the Lord Jesus. And would you please give us minds to understand just exactly what he is saying here. Would you give us hearts to embrace whatever it is that he's admonishing us to do from this parable. Would you give us wills to, to obey and follow hard after Jesus. Would you give us wills to repent if that's what we need to do. Give us wills to believe even more than, uh, than we did when we came in. And... Uh, Lord, give us all ears to hear. Please give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just reading through that parable, you can tell on, on even a surface reading of it that there are kind of three basic movements to the story. Uh, you have the initial invitations um, that are sent out to the expected guests who are going to come. And then they, they're the ones that reject the invitations. Then the second movement turns into the second round of invitations where they say, go out to the main roads and invite them and, and see what happens. And then third is that scene where it focuses on the, the guest who's not supposed to be there, the unwelcome guest who is bound hand and foot. Now, the immediate purpose that Jesus had in telling this parable uh, was one thing. And, I, and I'll point out quickly what I think his what that was. I don't think. I know what it was. But for our time, the bulk of our time tonight, um, I want to focus on some other legitimate truths and applications that we can take away from it. And I'll explain why I want to do it that way. So what was Jesus' original purpose in telling this parable? Well, if you look back to chapter 21, it'll be a little clearer. So chapter 21 began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem um, 
for the, the, to begin the last week of his earthly life before he would go to the cross on Friday of that week. So he, triumphal entry, he enters Jerusalem in this way, and the crowds recognize Jesus. They seemingly recognize him as the Messiah. How, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're praising the Lord Jesus. The Jewish rulers did not like it. Um, that, that little part of 21 is followed by Jesus enters into the temple and he chastises the, the, the money changers. He turns over the tables of the money changers and, and he's telling the Jewish leaders that they were, basically he's telling them that, that they were a, an offense to God in the way that they were presiding over the temple. And the Jewish leaders in that section tell Jesus, why haven't you corrected these people that are calling you the son of David? Basically, why aren't you telling them to stop quit? Tell him to stop calling you the Messiah. And, and Jesus is not going to do that. And then, in verse, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 21, Jesus curses the fig tree. Um, and, and basically, he's saying that these, through that act, that the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people, in some large respect, are cursed of God unless they come to him in repentance and faith. The leaders question his authority in that chapter. And then, look at the, the latter third of the chapter. Jesus tells two parables. He tells the parable of the two sons, which is a different one than we looked at last week, and the parable of the tenants. Now, we're not going to, we'll, we'll look at those in due time. But the Jewish leaders, when he told those two parables, they're not dumb. And they're, they're not thick-headed. Because uh, after he told those two parables, look at what they say in verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests... And the Pharisees heard his parables. Uh, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Uh, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they knew, okay, this guy just suddenly burst forth in parables. Like, what's the point? Oh, I kind of feel like he's talking about me. I kind of feel like I'm the bad guy in the parable. And I don't really like that. Um, and, 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 and Jesus was telling them that in these two parables at the end of 21, he's basically telling them, hey, the kingdom has been taken away from you. Um, uh, and even though you, you, are, you were the chosen people of God and you should have recognized the Messiah when he came, you, didn't, you have not come to me in repentance of faith. The kingdom is being taken away from you. You had every advantage. And that's exactly where chapter 22 begins. And, and, it, and, it, and chapter 22 began simply in the way that we just read, verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, and he told them the parable that we're going to study tonight about a wedding feast. And so in the context, it's pretty unmistakable that Jesus' original purpose for this parable is, is no different than the two parables at the end of 21. He's telling this parable against them as well. He's telling this parable of the wedding feast against the Jewish rulers of that day. And that's no different than what we saw a couple weeks ago with the Pharisee and the tax collector. That was told for the same reason. Like, so Jesus tell, is telling these parables to warn the Jews that the kingdom's being taken away from them. It's being given to Gentiles even. And when he says give it to Gentiles, to a Jew that would be like, would see a Gentile as an unredeemable sinner, but Jesus is redeeming them. So that's what's going on in our parable. It's an indictment against Jewish leaders and, it's, and, 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 and hope being, can, being offered to what they would have thought were, were the worst sinners and social outcasts. 
And um, what he's doing basically is telling yet another parable that's upending proud expectations and showing that God gives grace to the humble. So that being said, there are things that we can take away from this parable aside from that immediate historical purpose of this parable. Because even if verses 1 through 7 of our parable were directly aimed at the chief priests and the Pharisees, it's not like they don't have anything to say to us um, who are neither one of those things. And so here's what I'd like us to see from this parable uh, if, if you want to take notes. So first, we're going to divide it up this way. Verses 1 through 7, first, uh, we'll think about the patience of God. The patience of God. There is a good bit in those verses that we certainly need to hear. The patience of God in verses 1 through 7. And then second, just verses 8 through 10, we're going to think about the mercy of God. Um, as in, in the parable, the invitation goes out to the main roads where the least of these would have been found. So the mercy of God. And then thirdly and finally, verses 11 to 14, we'll see the provision of God for the salvation of those invited guests, how the unworthy were made worthy. So this is, this is a deeply encouraging parable, and, but as we read it, you see that it still has some pretty sharp edges. So uh, we'll try to take it all into account. So that, let's dive in and, and, and see what we can see. Think first about the patience of God. So the parable begins by saying, Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and I think I told you this, when, but I'll say it again. When you're reading the Gospels, um, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, two ways of referring to the same thing. You'll find that Mark and Luke often use kingdom of God. Matthew likes to use kingdom of heaven a lot. Those are not two separate realities, two different ways of referring to the same kingdom. But it says uh, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And that imagery, the fact that he chose that, you're going to find Jesus chose the setting for his parables to be kind of biting to, to, the, to the Jews uh, that he might have been speaking against. So, for example, aside from this, another common setting for his, um, for his parables is a vineyard. You'll see a lot of parables that take place in a vineyard. Well, why, why a vineyard? Did Jesus just like vineyards? I'm sure he did. He created them. But, but in the Old Testament, Israel is often, God talks about the nation of Israel as being like his vineyard that he planted, that he is trying to nourish and till and make flourish. And so when Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard, Israel should be thinking, oh, that's us. And then something goes very unexpected in that parable for them. Well, same kind of thing. When he's talking, this, this setting is a wedding feast. That is imagery that certainly has significance in Scripture. Like on the one hand, on the one hand, Jesus uses this imagery to make a point by making use of typical customs of the time, uh, when invitations would have been sent out and how people should have responded to them, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, we know from the rest of Scripture that the culmination of all of human history is headed to a wedding feast. Like, that's going to that's gonna tie up all of human history. We know that from Revelation chapter 19, which describes, Revelation chapter 19 describes the second coming of Jesus 
And he, take, he takes with him all the redeemed. What is the next scene? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So all of human history is working toward a grand, with all of the redeemed, wedding feast in the kingdom in all its fullness. So we should not be surprised that, that, that Jesus is using this imagery and saying the, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to it. Sure it can. It's going to be the climactic inauguration of the kingdom of heaven in all of its fullness when all of the redeemed have come into the fold. Well, this, this wedding feast, so this wedding feast in the parable is, is, is trying to picture for us the full kingdom of heaven in all of its glory. So as the story goes, verse 3, the king sent his servants to call all those who were invited. The story doesn't say who those were who were invited, but the way it's phrased makes it sound like it's the usual suspects. Like, the usual, like, like go, go, go call those who were invited. It's, it's, those who were invited is like the, the, the expected list of invitees. Like, the ones you expected to be there. The ones that you couldn't imagine not being invited or not going. So, go call, go call them. Well, as the story goes, they were invited for sure. But at the end of verse 3, it says they would not come. That alone, culturally, would have been quite unexpected. But it would have been a, a scandalous affront to the king, if a king is the one inviting, to refuse his invitation. But that they did. And what was, his, what was the, is the response from the king? He sent other servants... And, 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 and he told them, when you go, you be even more clear on what I'm inviting you to. That's why they say, man, come to the dinner's prepared. The fattened calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come, come, come. Right? Um, but again, they didn't go. And this time, the servants got more than one kind of response. So for, for, first, it says some of those servants didn't, didn't even pay attention to it. That's what it says in verse 5. They didn't even pay attention. They were more preoccupied with other things to take seriously what were being offered. It said in verse 5 that they felt like taking care of their farm or of their business. I mean, they felt like they had more pressing matters. But then the second, according to verse 6, uh, it wasn't so much they didn't care, it made them angry. And they treated shamefully the servants and killed them. Now, in the original intent of this parable, um, Jesus is clearly indicting the Jews here. Who were the servants and who were who the... Who's being killed here? Well, Jesus is, in the parable, these servants are, Jesus is, is, they represent the prophets that God sent throughout the Old Testament. The prophets who called the Old Testament people of Israel to repentance and to walk faithfully with God and trust in His promises. What happened in the Old Testament? They mistreated those prophets because they didn't recognize the Messiah when He came. And, and Jesus in the story indicates that judgment's going to come on them for their rejection uh, of, of him, of the king, of the son. And it says, when they rejected and they, or they killed the son or the servants, it says in verse 7, the king was angry and he sent troops and destroyed those murders and burned the city. Um, you know, um, it could be that Jesus is sort of prophetically alluding to something that really would happen in history in, in A.D. 70, that the Romans would destroy Jerusalem. That's maybe what the burning of the city is. Um, but it could be also that he's referring to eternal separation from God is going to mention at the end of the parable. 
But as we go back through this whole first part of the parable, this whole opening scene, there are other things to see. One is something that we've already seen Jesus emphasize in another parable. Um, when he said back in verse 5, why some rejected his invitation, namely because of their concern for their farm and their business, that's no different than the parable of the sower, that some seed were sown and, and, and it represented those for whom the cares of this world and the riches choked out the word and it proved, not fruit, or proved that it wouldn't take root. Um, caring for those other things and not taking seriously the invitation, that's not a particularly strong temptation just for Jews of that day. Like, that is just as strong for us today. Like, just as strong for us today. To, to love and to be preoccupied with other loves so that the word that we have heard so many times just does not take root. That can, that can keep unbelievers away from Christ forever, as it does in this parable, but it can also plague believers from enjoying the fullness that all of Christ is for them. Um, it reminds me of what John Piper once said in his book, A Hunger for God. I commend that to you. It's on prayer and fasting called A Hunger for God by John Piper. A Hunger for God. It's on prayer and fasting, that book by John Piper called A Hunger for God. I think you can even get it for free on, on uh, Desiring God. But anyway, go ahead. Um, John Piper, in that book, A Hunger for God, once said, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. I think that's what, what that, these, I have my farm, my business, I think that's what's going on there. But perhaps more than anything else in this opening scene, what else we see in this opening scene is the patience of God. Because, and I tell you that, where do, how do I see this? As I tell you all the time, whenever you read a passage of Scripture, you should always ask three questions of it. You know what they are. What does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? What does it ask me to do? You ask that of this, what do you see of God in here? And I see the patience of God. Because, first of all, we note the initiative of God in verse 3. To, he's the one that sent the invitation in the first place. But not only that, it's not just his initiative, but I see his patience, because not just in that first initiative, but in his continued invitations after they reject it the first time. And not only that, but the second time he invites them, the, the, the invitation is even more elaborate. And certainly judgment came on that city because of their response to the, those that the king sent to them. But the the justice of God in that nobody questions the burning of that city because the justice of God is so clearly seen precisely because the king had been so kind and so patient with them in the story, sending them invitation after invitation. 
And that's a word for us. God is patient with us in the same way. Like, and that should not make us more negligent with our time. But the patience of God with us should make us see the time in our lives, tick-tock, tick-tock, as all the more precious. Every moment of it. And not to squander all the invitations that He gives you every single week. Invitations either to trust Christ, because I can't see your heart. Perhaps you do need to repent of your sins and trust Christ. Do not squander those opportunities. Or even if you have, and you're sitting here tonight, and you sat in here last Wednesday night, and the Wednesday before that, and the sun, last Sunday, and you're going to be here this Sunday, all of these times, every time you sit in here and hear this word, it's an invitation. It's an invitation that's been sitting here, to, not only just to trust Christ, but to grow close to Christ and to give your life to Him and follow Him. That's what He's inviting you to do. These these what we're doing right now, this is not just things we do. This is not just things we do. Every time we meet, it's doing something to you, right? And one caution that this parable gives us at this point is to pay attention to the invitations. Every time we hear God's Word and we hear it half-heartedly, a spiritual callus can build up on our hearts and the Word does not speak to us as loudly the next time, right? But if we see the patience of God in this opening section of the parable, without question, we also see the mercy of God in the second scene. Think about that with me for just a second in verses 8 through 10. So after the expected guests had all rejected the invitation, he turns to others. And in the original intent, this would be Jesus saying that he's, he's taken the kingdom to the Gentiles and that the, he's taken it to the people, that, that the sinners that the Jewish thought, people thought were, were worthless and beyond the hope of God. Jesus said, well, I'm taking it to them anyway. And in the story, verse 8, the king says, he says in verse 8 that the original invitees, those that were originally invited, he says, note that phrase at the end of verse 8, they were not worthy. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and we're going to come back to that. They weren't worthy. Well, as soon as he says those, those originally invited were not worthy, the very next thing he does is he tells more servants, I'm guessing in this sense they represent apostles, to go out into the roads, which means God is going to build his kingdom and populate his banquet table with the least expected guests with, from the world's perspective. He's going to gather all who would come, no matter who, no matter what background, in fact, it very clearly says, he would, it says in verse um, 10, it says in verse 10 that, the, that he gathered all whom he found, comma, both good and bad, or both bad and good. That's interesting. I said I would come back to the, they were not worthy. He says the, the, the original people who, who rejected his invitation, they, they were not worthy. So, so they weren't worthy. So who do I want you to go invite? Both bad and good. What? Like, my initial reaction is, well, if the original invitees were not worthy, and you go invite both bad and good, well, how are the bad worthy? 
right? If, if, if the Jewish, Jews weren't worthy, how is some drunk Gentile on the side of the road, how is he worthy, right? It doesn't seem to add up. It'll be more fully explained in, in the last point, which we'll get to in just a second. But when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking, how in this parable go to, go to the main roads and invite both bad and good, and somehow they're supposed to be worthy when the first guys weren't worthy? How is that? It reminded me of a quote from John Calvin. When, um, when Calvin was a pastor in Geneva, this is what he would tell his congregation every time they took the Lord's Supper. He would say before they took the Lord's Supper, uh, at, at first it's a bit of a tongue twister, but listen carefully. He would tell his congregation every time they took the Lord's Supper, the only worthiness that God requires to be worthy to partake is to recognize our own unworthiness and to find our worthiness in Christ. The only worthiness that God requires to be worthy to partake is to recognize our own unworthiness and find our worthiness in Christ. So what, I think that's exactly right. That's so biblical. What does worthiness before God look like then is to, to know and to acknowledge before God how unworthy you are and that to be worthy, you're going to need to be made worthy by something else, someone else, by another, by Christ. And that's where this parable is about to go. But I don't want to get there first without just pausing at this point to acknowledge the mercy of God in this whole exchange. God doesn't owe a feast to anybody, let alone those out on the main roads. By the way, if you want to know who, who, the, who do they represent? Us. We are the, we're the ones that are out on the main roads. We're the ones who have lived our whole lives for ourselves. We're the ones who, have, Isaiah said, we've all turned to our own, our own way. God in His mercy shows patience to those who scorned His offer of grace. And then He extends grace and forgiveness to those that the world would have least expected it to be offered to. Even those who received the offer. But you can see that they jumped at His offer because they knew they knew what they deserved. They jumped at his offer to, for the feast because Jesus simply says at the end of verse 10, oh, the wedding hall was filled with guests. But how can God do that? God repeatedly says of, his, of himself in the Old Testament, and we'll, we'll come around to this point again when we get to Romans 4 on Sunday mornings, but God repeatedly says, this kind of thing about himself in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 7, he, he, God is, uh, he declares his covenant name and he's holy and it says about God that he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 7. God will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so how does he very obviously clear the guilty right here? Because he does. And the way he does it, and still be true to his word in Exodus 34, 7, is that the Lord is more than simply merciful. Jesus, in the third and final section of this parable, teaches us about the provision of God, that teaches us how God can be both just and merciful to a repentant sinner. Think with me quickly about verses 11 to 14 as we come to a close. In the story 
once the feast has begun, the king comes in and he sees a guest who was not wearing a wedding garment. And because he wasn't, he is bound and taken away into outer darkness, into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, this is precisely where somebody could press the details of a parable just a little bit too far um, by taking them a little too seriously and thinking that everything means something else. Like the way that would look like here is this, they would say, oh, the feast represents heaven and there's a guest in heaven who then gets thrown out to hell. And so somebody it makes it to heaven but then loses heaven. No, that's not what this is saying at all. That's pressing the details of this parable too far. All that Jesus wants us to see here is this. The king himself is providing the garments. That for a sinner means the difference between the feast of heaven and outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The king provides the garments. What are these garments? Well, jot this reference down and read it if you haven't already. Or recently, it reminds me of a vision, and I'm going to guess you haven't read this recently, in Zechariah chapter 3. Maybe you have. I apologize if you have. Zechariah chapter 3. This vision in Zechariah 3, Zechariah the prophet has a, has a vision of, of Joshua the high priest. And, and he sees Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord. But he doesn't just see Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord. He also sees Satan right beside him accusing him before the Lord. Joshua's a sinner, and Satan is just accusing, 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 accusing before the Lord. And in that vision, the way that Joshua is presented to us standing before the Lord, the way he is depicted in that vision is he is standing there in filthy garments. He's standing there in filthy garments, and Satan is just accusing, accusing, accusing. And the, but the way the story goes is that God sends the angel of the Lord, who I believe is pre-incarnate Christ, to go to Joshua, remove his filthy garments with this pronouncement, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And these pure vestments are, 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 are to represent being covered in the righteousness of God himself. Revelation 7, 14 and 22, 14 tells us this. Blessed are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter the gates by the city. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Joshua the high priest was clothed with the pure vestments from God Himself. Romans 13, 14 tells us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you put Jesus on? All right? I think it means more than one thing, but at, at the first thing it means to put on His righteousness that He earned for us by His sinless life offered to us through repentance and faith because of His resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3.9 says it this way. talks about being found in Christ. Philippians 3.9. This is a memory verse, guys. Memorize it. Being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I'm a sinner. But I want to be found in Christ 
Even though I don't have a righteousness of my own, but I have a righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness from God. From God that depends on faith. These are the wedding garments. The righteousness of Christ given to us when we repent and believe. That's how God can be just and merciful at the same time. He's not merely merciful to where He has to ignore our sin so as to forgive us. He is just in that He clothes us with the, the, the actually earned righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, during His earthly life, earned it for us, puts that on us, so that when He looks at us, He sees Jesus, and so His mercy is just. He doesn't have to just sweep it under the rug. The righteousness of Christ given to us when we repent and believe. That's how somebody goes into the wedding feast. And look, as we come to a close, look at how Jesus ends this parable. After they throw the guy out, verse 14, he ends it this way. For many are called, but few are chosen. You know, see, here's what I'm saying. As they went out to the main roads and they found the drunk Gentile in the ditch, he never would have said, I'm chosen of God. But when he received that invitation and he saw how unworthy he was and I don't deserve what I'm being offered, so I better take it. And he goes and he's clothed in the wedding garments. As he's sitting there, he turns around and sees chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. That's security. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom. The only worthiness that God requires is to recognize our own unworthiness and to find our worthiness of Christ. That's the reason that the first guys rejected. It's the reason that the second guys knew what they deserved, knew what they were being offered, and came. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, I pray that this would be us. Lord, I pray that I, I do pray. I don't know everybody in this room. I, well, I, I don't know everybody in this room very well, so as to say, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that everybody sitting here tonight is a is a born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I don't know if everybody in this room has repented of their sins and said, I am putting all, all of my eggs in the basket of Jesus. I am putting all of my hope in Jesus for my standing and for my hope and for my eternal life, for every good that I could possibly ever have. I'm putting all, of, I'm putting all my chips on Jesus to follow Him. If, if, if there's somebody here that has never done that, Lord, I pray that tonight they would not ignore the invitation that they have received from the Lord Jesus in this parable. Now, after I pray that somebody that needs to trust Christ tonight, Lord, that they might come to talk to me or they come to talk to Katie um, or, or, or a friend, Lord. But I pray for every one of us here that, that are believers, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't ignore the invitation as well to, to hear the admonishment in us that, that, that though we know that we come to Christ 
uh, sinners in need of His righteousness to, Savior, uh, righteousness to save us, that we don't then from that point on walk in our own righteousness. That I need the righteousness of Jesus today just as much as I have any day of my life. And that, that, that when I have been disobedient, when I have been rebellious, when I have gone astray, when I feel shame because of something that I've done, and I want to repent of that sin, I don't have demerits before you, Lord, because my righteousness is Jesus. I pray that that would be an encouraging word to many here. Lord, thank you for these parables. In Jesus' name, amen.